0: Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada. This is our live stream for Wednesday, October 18th. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor here, uh, along with Asa Wynn Stanley, and of course our Executive Director, Ali Abunima. Um, We are going to have a very full show today, so please stay tuned, Um, including uh, pre-recorded messages and videos from some of our contributors in the Gaza Strip. Uh, as well as um, expert analysis, as always. Um, but, of course, uh, the, the the top story right now is uh, Israel's bombing of the Al-Ahli hospital in Gaza City yesterday um, and the extreme disinformation campaign uh, that Israel and its allies in the West have been undertaking. Um, Of course, today we saw uh, President Biden, who is apparently a forensic munitions expert, um, saying that uh, obviously I think he said it was the other guys speaking to Netanyahu today in a press conference. So much to get into. Um, Ali Abunima, please uh, take it away with your opening remarks.
1: Thank you, Nora. History teaches us that uh, every genocide campaign is based on lies. Lies told about the victims by the perpetrator and lies told by the perpetrators about themselves. And so it is with the Israeli-American genocide taking place now in Gaza. First, there is the lie that the victims represent pure evil. In this case, that manifest, manifested in Israel's claims that when Palestinian resistance fighters staged a surprise offensive out of the Gaza ghetto on 7th of October, they were hell-bent on murdering Jews just for the sake of murder. Comparisons have been made with the pogroms of the past, with Babi Yah, and with the Holocaust as a whole. Fake atrocity tales were spread like wildfire, like the lies about rape and Palestinians beheading 40 Jewish babies. We can never forget that these poisonous lies were spread by countless journalists and politicians, not least by Benjamin Netanyahu and President Joe Biden. But paying attention, but pay attention to this. No one bothered calling for a thorough investigation before believing and spreading Israel's lies. No one said we have to wait and see. The whole so-called West, those famous champions of peace, love, human rights, democracy, and apple pie, pledged their full, unquestioning allegiance to Israel as it announced it would wage a war of annihilation in Gaza without restraint, without regard to any norms of international humanitarian law or basic human decency. None of them flinched when Israel's war minister, Yoav Galant, announced he was cutting off food, water, electricity, fuel, and medicine to 2.3 million people that he called human animals, half of them children, caged inside a ghetto. None of them flinched when, based on its lies, Israel has exterminated family after family in Gaza, burying them under the rubble of their homes. men. Women, children, grandparents, doctors, journalists, artists, workers, newlyweds, teenagers with hopes and dreams. It didn't matter. The righteous rage of Israel at the human beasts permitted, sanctified this ongoing slaughter. But now we know, indeed, we always knew that these were lies. As the Israeli survivor Yasmin Parat gave testimony to Israel Radio, it was Israeli forces who went into the Gaza-area Israeli settlements on and after October 7 and indiscriminately massacred the Palestinian fighters and Israeli civilians alike. That does not mean Palestinians did not kill some Israelis. Indeed, as I mentioned last time, one of the leaders of the Qassam brigades acknowledged that Israeli civilians were killed. But there has been no evidence presented of systematic, deliberate murder of Israeli civilians or that this was Hamas's plan. But still, no calls for any investigation. Instead, what we have is war propaganda claiming not just that Hamas is ISIS, but that it is worse than ISIS. As historian Louis Alday writes for the Electronic Intifada uh, today, the success of Israel's framing is aided by the fact that it is able to draw on the many years of Islamophobic conditioning of Western society, as well as the long-standing dominance of anti-Palestinian pro-Zionist narratives in the cultural mainstream. Many of us who lived through 9-11 and its terrible aftermath can immediately recognize the same pattern of incitement and demonization which enables not just the Israeli massacres in Gaza but crimes like the killing of six-year-old Wadi Al-Fayyum in the Chicago suburbs who was attacked in his home along with his mother by their landlord who was shouting, you Muslims must die. Now here we are, the day after an unspeakable atrocity, the attack on the Al-Ahli hospital in Gaza City, an absolute horror that, according to the health ministry, killed at least 471 people. Again, the bodies of mothers and their children, fathers, brothers, the sick, the disabled, people who had come seeking shelter in what they thought would be a safe place, torn to shreds. Immediately. Israel's spin machine went into overdrive. Official Israeli media accounts put out a video they claimed showed a misfired Islamic Jihad missile hitting the hospital, and then they quickly deleted it. Another official Israeli representative actually took credit for the bombing of the hospital, but justified it by saying Hamas had been using it as a base. That claim, too, was quickly deleted. But Israel is sticking to its story despite the fact that no Palestinian rocket ever caused such death and devastation. Israel claims that over the years, tens of thousands of rockets have been fired by Palestinian groups. Altogether, they have killed perhaps three dozen people in more than 20 years. And the damage they do is minuscule compared with what happened at that hospital. Here's a video verified by the Washington Post that shows the explosion at the hospital. Let's take a look at it. <laughs> 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 And that's not all. The American Friends of the Episcopal Diocese of Jerusalem, which fundraises for Al Ahli Hospital, which is the only Christian hospital in Gaza, said that the hospital's diagnostic cancer center was already struck by Israeli rocket fire on the 14th of October, injuring four of its staff. Yusuf Abu rish a senior health official in Gaza, told Al Jazeera yesterday that the day after Al-Ahli was attacked on Saturday, the Israeli military called the hospital's director and told him, we warned you yesterday with two shells and and ordered the evacuation of the facility, as Israel has told some 20 other hospitals in Gaza that they have to evacuate. Israeli political and military leaders have made numerous statements indicating that all of gaza's 2.3 million people are the target of its campaign of extermination and they have used language declaring their intent to commit genocide and let's recall that in previous confrontations israel blamed misfired rockets for strikes that killed civilians only for its investigations only for investigations to later determine that the Israeli military was responsible. And none of us can forget the international outrage uh, in May of 2022 when Israel put out a video that purported to show Palestinian gunmen uh, who are uh, being responsible for the killing of Al-Jazeera's Shirin Abu Akleh in the West Bank. And as we all know, That video was quickly debunked by Israeli human rights group B'Tselem and numerous other independent investigations that determined that it was an Israeli sniper that killed Shireen. Even though Israel and the United States ultimately admitted Israel's responsibility, no one has been held accountable for her killing. Although Israel's propaganda blitz after the hospital massacre did not convince seasoned journalists and close observers and quickly fell apart under the merest scrutiny, it did serve its purpose, the same purpose Israel's lies always serve, to muddy the waters in order to shift blame and create a media narrative of uncertainty and controversy, just as they did in the case of Shirin Abu even if Israel has to eventually, sometime down the road, admit its responsibility, by then it will be too late. It will have already been seared into the minds of millions that Palestinians did this to themselves, or that we can never really know. Israel's lies serve another purpose too. By involving us all in an argument about who did this particular massacre, as horrible as it is, Israel is managing to distract from the horrifying other major massacres of which it is very proud. Just on Tuesday alone Israeli airstrikes targeting residential buildings killed at least 28 people in Rafah city, 40 people in Khan Yunis and 21 people in Khan Yunis's Emirati neighborhood. The fatalities included people moving southward in compliance with the Israeli military order to evacuate the northern Gaza Strip, according to the United Nations. And just take a look at this tweet from Netanyahu bragging about bringing down entire apartment buildings without warning and frequently with entire families inside. That's what Netanyahu is proud of. Israel hasn't denied its massacres all day and all night for 12 days that have killed more than 3,000 people and maimed thousands more. They're proud of them, and they're demanding more of them. Just like Itamar Ben-Gvir, Israel's national security minister, wrote yesterday, the only thing that needs to enter Gaza is hundreds of tons of explosives from the Air Force, not an ounce of humanitarian aid who's the target of that everyone with power is going along with israel's story about the hospital now everyone is pretending not to know what happened none of them are asking for serious investigations last night as joe biden headed to tel aviv to give his in-person blessing to the israeli extermination campaign U.S. National Security Spokesperson John Kirby announced that the president would be asking Netanyahu some, quote, tough questions about the hospital massacre. He'll be asking them as a friend, as a true friend of Israel, Kirby added. But it didn't take long for tough Joe Biden to turn into jelly. Speaking in Israel today, he claimed, quote, based on the information we've seen today, It appears to be the result of an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza. It's clear that the United States is doubling down, that if it is up to Washington, there will be no mercy or reprieve for Gaza. I cannot but agree with Raji Surani, the director of the Palestinian Center for Human Rights in Gaza. He says, shame on US pres shame on US President Joe Biden to cover up such large-scale massacres and be complicit in doing the second Nakba against the Palestinians. Indeed, shame on Joe Biden for being complicit in genocide. Nora.
0: Thank you so much, Ali. Indeed. Um, we're going to go to uh, our good friend Yusuf Ajamel uh, who is from Gaza in one moment, um, but first we want to play a, uh, a a short video of um, some of the uh, reports that some of our contributors have uh, sent to us in, in the last 24 hours to update us on their situation. Um, Two of these recordings were made around the 10th day of Israel's military assault on Gaza. Uh, Our contributor Mohamed Assad, a photojournalist from Gaza, visited the site of Al Ahli uh, hospital in Gaza City today. Mohammed told the Electronic Intifada that he traveled through the coastal enclave under dangerous circumstances, covering three different locations in order to connect to the internet and send these updates to us. And I want to stress that we did not ask him to do this. Um, we did not ask him to take any unnecessary risks uh, to himself. Um, but he files uh, this report first, and then we hear uh, an audio message from our good friend and contributor, uh, Ahmed Abu Artema who is one of the co-founders of Gaza's Great March of Return. And then we hear from another contributor, uh, Asil, who is uh, also in Gaza City and sent uh, her report. So let's go to that video.
2: أسف جاءت مجتمعه هنا يسقط القناع، يسقط القناع عن الوجه الحقيقي للاحتلال الإسرائيلي الدامي، وكذلك يسقط القناع عن الوجه الأوروبي والأمريكي الذي أشبعنا شعارات عشرات من السنين عن حقوق الإنسان. طلبوا يتباكع على قطة أو طفل الأوكراني سالت الدماءه ولكن هذه المرة الدماء الفلسطينية ولا ننسى القناع العربي الذي طوطة وطبع نيران هنا لا زالت مشتعلة في المكان بعض الأهالي أتوا لتفقد بقايا أشلاء أبنائهم لأن معظم العائلات هنا تحولوا إلى قطع من اللحم المتناثرة تم جمعها في أكياس. بقايا أطفال وبقايا نساء وبقايا رجال وعجزة كذلك لم يرحمهم الاحتلال ويشاهدهم بكل دقة عبر طائرات الاستطلاع التي تحلق في السماء وهو يعرف ويعلم جيدا ما الذي يستهدفه في هذا المكان هنا المستشفى المعمداني بغزة (تصفيق)
3: hi comrades i'm recording
0: we're gonna try and get that back up um uh that yeah uh, okay here Gaza
3: we go now is subjected to the genocide it's not an israeli operation it's literally genocide israel declared this clearly Israel is not targeting Hamas or the other factions. Israel said in the media that it's targeting the people themselves. About 3,000 citizens until now, in just 10 days, they were massacred by the Israeli attacks. The, this number is while I'm recording. But when you listen to this message, the toll of the victims will be bigger than that. Every 15 minutes, there is a new child is killed by the Israeli attack. Israel, the Israeli warplanes bombarded complete neighborhoods, complete neighborhoods it destroyed the houses while the families were sleeping inside so those are the enemies of israel the enemies of israel is not hamas the enemies of israel is the palestinian people themselves the horrible that this is happened by complete backing from the united states administration and all the Western governments, all of them are supporting the Israeli genocide. They are saying that, yes, you have to completely kill the Palestinian people. This is the reality. This is the reality. Now, just in about 10 days, about a million Palestinians were forcibly displaced from their houses. Their houses were destroyed by the, by the Israeli warplanes. Israel is still declaring that its genocide is continuous. No signs that this horrible genocide will be finished soon. They are very trusty that the United States administration is completely backing them. How can we stop the, this genocide? How can we stop this massacre? It's an extension to the massacre to the Nakba on 1948. This is exactly what's happening on 1948. Israel itself was established on the rubble of the Palestinian people. It displaced our grandfather's grandfathers including my own grandfather. They displaced them from their towns and, uh, and uh, uh, cities uh, under the pressure of the massacres at that time. Then, when it removed the Palestinian villages and cities, it created the state of Israel. Israel is continuing this Nakba today in 2023, but there is one difference. The only difference is that the Nakba today is by video and by voice. All the world is watching this genocide. So I, I, I don't have any word to describe the horrible situation in Gaza now. There is no food, there is no water, there is no supplies that the hospitals cannot receive more patients or more injured people israel is destroying the hospitals and the schools how can we stop this genocide it's the time that all of us that all of of you to uh, protest to organize very huge demonstrations and say we are the peoples we are the peoples who believe in freedom and dignity for everyone we are the peoples who resist this regimes regimes of genocide and apartheid like the israeli regime and this regime must be ended if it's not be ended this means more massacres more tragedy more children and women will be Uh, will be uh, 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 killed by this Israeli uh, genocide regime. So please, this is the historic time. This is the historic time to show our strong support, not only to the Palestinian people, but to all the peoples around the world. If we allow for the injustice to be committed in one place, so it will happen in the other places uh, please this is the time this is the moment every single day we let in expressing our anger and demonstrating against this this genocide this means more families are wiped out more children are are be killed uh, please this is not our only uh, uh, our 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 only battle as palestinians they are trying to 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 bring to us the same fate of the native people in america and in the other places this is not or th- this is not our own battle this is your battle this is our common struggle this is the, st- the struggle of all the peoples all the free people against the colonial powers. Please stand with us, stand in the right side of the history.
4: During the Israeli aggression, the situation in Gaza has become dire. Israel has severed our access to fuel, electricity and food. This blockade has paralyzed all facets of life, with our health care system on the brink of collapse. My family and I had to relocate from our home in the western part of the Gaza Strip. To the south, when the Israeli occupation declared its intent to demolish the neighborhoods in the north, it's hard to fathom that 1.1 million Palestinians are under such threat, with hundreds forced to flee without knowing their destination. Gaza lacks shelters, no place is truly safe. Every entity, be it the children, women, civilians, hospitals, or even
3: honorable schools, is vulnerable to attacks.
0: Uh, that uh, was the voice uh, of Asil Musa, our contributor in Gaza, uh, along with Ahmed Abu Artema and uh, of course Mohammed Assad giving us that um, eyewitness report from Al Ahli Hospital. Um, and I, I want to thank Tamara Nassar, of course, behind the scenes for uh, compiling that together. Uh, Yusuf al-Jamal, I want to bring you in. You're a researcher in Middle Eastern studies and the author and translator of a number of books, uh, including um, your co-author of A Shared Struggle, Stories of Palestinian and Irish Hunger Strikers. Uh, Yusuf, you are from Gaza. You grew up in Gaza. Your family is in Gaza. Tell us us about uh, what has happened uh, the last uh, week there for, for you and your family.
4: Thank you, Nora and um, Ali. Uh, so for the past eleven days, you know, Israel has been uh, bombarding the Gaza Strip, including my refugee camp, Nusayrat where um, almost six hundred thousand Palestinians uh, sought shelter. refuge at honorwa's um, schools. Uh, Today Israel bombed an honorwa school in Maghazi in Maghazi refugee camp in in the middle area where my family lives. My sister lives in Maghazi refugee camp and killed six Palestinians um, at least. Uh, My family describes, you know, the attacks. This is not the first time Gaza is subjected to a campaign of Israeli terror and bombardment. But this time, the magnitude of destruction, uh, leveling entire neighborhoods to the ground, bombing houses, residential buildings without warning became the norm. Um, Just uh, on Sunday, um, my extended family uh, lost nine members after Israel bombarded um, one of our, um, you know, extended families' houses, my father's cousins, and uh, nine people were killed. My father's cousin, a retired nurse, along with his wife, um, three of his children, uh, and three of his uh, grandchildren and his uh, niece. Uh, and again, this is happening to multiple families where entire families are completely erased from the civic records. Uh, they're killed altogether because Israel bombs houses without uh, warning. In my refugee camp yesterday, uh, in Nadi, uh, Abu Zbeda, Derbashi and Timraz families' houses were completely destroyed. While people were still inside, dozens of people, um, especially, you know, in Nusayarat where a lot of people have evacuated Gaza city uh, and another part of, of, of Gaza to the south as per the instructions or, say, the threats of the Israeli army, a lot of houses are crowded. My family's house is very crowded. We have multiple um, family members from different parts of even Nusayrat itself. Uh, there, there is no place that is safe. There are a lot of people who are, you know, crowded in one place and then Israel comes and bombs the house on the top of its residence like without any warning which leaves entire families you know killed and removed from the civic records uh, uh, israel doesn't shy away from targeting schools uh, hospitals um, even bakeries the uh, banna bakery was bombed in, in my refugee camp today uh, two people were killed and it's one of two Bakeries in Nusayirat refugee camp that serve a hundred thousand Palestinians, and Israel is doing this intentionally. They're doing this intentionally. They know what they're doing uh, because they want to uh, cut, you know, bread supplies uh, from Palestinians who um, flee, you know, fled from um, the northern and the uh, Gaza City parts to the south. Uh, as per their uh, orders, uh, depriving them of, of bread, uh, as basic as that. I mean, Israel's pri- uh, security minister, defense minister, sorry, uh, has publicly bragged about uh, shutting down fuel, internet uh, and water uh, services to Gaza. Uh, and I think this is a continuation of what happening, what, what happened in 1948. As Ahmed Abortema said, moving to the south was also something that my grandparents had in 1948, for them to be safe. And they ended up as refugees in Gaza. They've been living in Gaza as refugees for 75 years. And now they're asked again to move further to the south. It's, it's part of this mentality of settler colonialism, of getting rid of the indige- indigenous people of, of Gaza by pushing them to another country or... By you know all all necessary means, uh, killing them if necessary um, to to make space uh, for for Israeli settlers and the Israeli state. Uh, this reminds me of uh, an article and uh, I read earlier um, how you know some Israelis think of Gaza as a parking lot. They wish that Gaza could be turned into the biggest parking lot in the world. This is this this genocidal mentality. Um, translates itself in Gaza today. And I'm not surprised.
1: Yusuf, um, I often think about uh, that day uh, 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago in May of 2013, when I had the the honor to visit uh, you and your family in the Sairat refugee camp. And your mom prepared a wonderful lunch for us in your house. And um, I think about how much at home I felt and how the atmosphere was no different from any Palestinian community. Uh, If you were to go to Jordan or to go to the West Bank or to go to Lebanon, you would feel the same warmth. You would feel very much at home. And uh, I often reflect that it's simply an accident that uh, you were born in Nusairat refugee camp and I was born somewhere else. Our positions could have been the other way around. It's simply an accident. And uh, I cannot imagine the uh, utter horror that the people in Nusairat camp are facing. And And so I just want to ask you, are you able to stay in contact with your family? How are they doing? Uh, we know that Israel's stated goal is to break the people, to force them to surrender, to force them to turn against the resistance. Is that working from what, from what you can tell? what What's the mood as far as you know? So it's very hard to reach out
4: to my family. As you know, Israel shut down um, cellular services, internet services. Uh, but from time to time, I can text with my family. Like I can send them text messages and, and they reply back in a few hours. And basically, um, the question I ask is Are you okay? Are you still alive? And then they would reply and say, Yes, we are still alive. And then they would describe the horror of the night they went through. Um, so my family is still physically okay. But you can imagine the horror they go through every night, um, having to, to live under nonstop bombardment for, for 24 hours, 24-7, basically, um, with so much destruction, having to, to listen to, to, to the news of deaths of people, communities they knew firsthand, and their neighbors, and friends. Um, Again, my family did not have to evacuate because we live south of the Gaza Valley. Um, But I asked my family, if Israel asks you to evacuate, would you? And they said, no. Indeed, uh, because Israel bombed, you know, a convoy of Palestinians who fled the, the north and Gaza city to the south. Some Palestinians started going back to their homes in Gaza City and and the north from those who fled um, to Rafah and Khan Yunis. So my family's answer is very clear. They're not going to become refugees for the second time in their lives. A lot of people in Gaza say heaven is closer to us than the Sinai, which means that they would prefer to die in Gaza in dignity inside their homes rather than becoming refugees in the Sinai, as Israel plans to um so you know using lethal force and this is not new to israel this is not surprising indeed this has been the norm um except that this time it got you know more green lights and support from the west and it got uglier uh you know with so much destruction uh, in order to push palestinians to, to leave gaza because this is the first time israel declares um, it's intention that they want Palestinians in Gaza out now. Uh, so they had to use so much destruction and lethal force to, to push people um, out of Gaza. Um, but again, people are not leaving Gaza. Um, I know a uh, 90-year-old Palestinian who became a refugee at the age of 16 from a village. Uh, he still lives in a rental house in Gaza Although he was able to financially, you know, afford to purchase a land lot and buy a house. He was a teacher. He had a master's degree in the 50s. Uh, He refuses to do that because even Gaza for him is is his refugee camp. uh, And he doesn't want to accept this fact and like settle down and buy a house. This is how people think. And Israel needs to understand, um, you know, this issue, the issue of Palestinian refugees in Gaza. Uh, and I think what Israel is doing is very in, like connected uh, to the fact that 70% of Gaza's population are refugees and they understand this very well. Once these people have the chance, they will return back. And that's why they're trying to push them away further from you know settler communities, from settlers who took over their lands uh, and houses. Uh, in some cases, Palestinian refugees live literally a mile away from what used to be their lands and and, and homes. And I think this genocidal campaign to erase uh, the people of Gaza, 70% of them are refugees, is an integral part of the ongoing Nakba that started in 1948. That aimed to push Palestinians away. Um, The bad news is still that we exist. We did not disappear. Um, There are 50... Uh, thousand pregnant women in Gaza, Uh, every month we have five thousand to six thousand newborn babies. We're not going to disappear. We are here in Gaza, in Jerusalem and in the West Bank in 1948. We are the majority between the Jordan uh, River and the Mediterranean and um, all Israel's campaigns of terror will not push us away uh, from our lands.
0: Yusuf, we know you have to leave in in a few minutes, um, but I just wanted to ask about uh, what you're hearing about uh, your family and your community uh, in Gaza, their uh, ability to access water, food, um, basic uh, necessities and supplies. I mean, we're we're hearing reports of, um, you know, people having to give their children polluted water or seawater. Um, because the fresh water, of course, is uh, unavailable. And, and this is even, you know, this is also not a new thing. In the last, you know, 16 years at least, uh, Gaza, 97% of Gaza's uh, water is undrinkable um, because of the destruction of infrastructure, the deliberate um, destruction uh, by Israel on the Gaza Strip. T- talk about how people are able to, if they are, uh, access uh, clean water and food.
4: So as you said, 97% of Gaza's water is unfit for human consumption, and this was before this um, genocide started. Uh, With this genocide, the situation got even worse, especially that uh, electricity is off most of the time too. So without electricity, a lot of people cannot even pump this unfit for human consumption water uh, into tanks. Um, so for people to to survive, they have to purchase water. and a lot of these water desalination, private water desalination facilities are not working now because of, uh, you know, electricity outages. And again, because of access, people cannot leave their houses. These like tanks that distribute clean water um, that people buy cannot move and drive around Gaza. It's very risky. So a lot of people do not have access to water. Uh, My sister told me um, on the seventh day of the aggression that she did not shower her kids for seven days. Uh, So I saw uh, a post on on Facebook, a friend of mine, uh, Tamir Hamam from from Gaza, He, he said, we got to the stage where we like, say, children first when it comes to water. So, we give water to children, and then if we have enough water, we we give to, to adults. Uh, so, this is the situation starvation. And, uh, and, you know, this reminds us of this genocidal mentality in 1948. Um, there are Palestinian refugees who lost their lives while having to flee um, their towns and villages in Lid and Ramleh. Because of the lack of water, uh, I remember this Palestinian who built um, a water fountain in the memory of his grandmother who passed away while you know leaving her village at gunpoint because she did not have access. She was uh, you know deprived of of, of water. And this is this mentality of poisoning even Palestinian water wells in 1948. It's a continuation of this, so that people leave because without water, you know, water is life. Um, then people will have to think about, you know, survival. Um, But again, as I said, uh, people in Gaza are very resilient and they learned from the past that they will never become refugees again. This is something that no one chooses to become. Um, In fact, uh, just six years before my refugee camp became, my refugee camp in 1948 and 1942, a thousand Greek refugees became uh, refugees in Nusayarat uh, when Nazis in, uh, invaded their island. Uh, and they stayed in Nusayrat for uh, for a year before they were able to go back to, to Greece. And this is a reminder to, to every one of us that this is something that the Palestinian people did not choose. Um, but then now we have to deal with the, this genocidal government in, in Israel led by the most right-wing you know, politicians in Israel's history. The message that we have as Palestinians in Gaza 70% of people in Gaza are refugees. There are eight refugee camps in Gaza that we are not going to become refugees again.
0: Yusuf Ajamal, you're a writer and scholar, um, and we are a contributor to the Electronic Intifada. We're so grateful. Um, for you and your work and um, for giving us um, your testimony today. We'll have you back on very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yusuf. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Yusuf.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And we're going to bring on our our analysts, um, our analyst gallery here. Uh, John Elmer, of course, is a journalist researcher. He's been joining us uh, on most of these live streams. Uh, And Abdeljawad Omar is an academic and lecturer at Birzeit University in the occupied West Bank. Um, Before we go to you, John, I want to hear from Abdeljawad about uh, the situation in the West Bank, which has been completely overshadowed as all eyes have been on Gaza. Um, There have been uh, numerous Israeli invasions, uh, pogrom attacks by Israeli settlers, um and of course uh you know everyone in, in the west bank is looking at what's happening across gaza especially yesterday with the bombing uh, with israel's bombing of Al uh hospital there have been demonstrations can you can you give us a sense of what's been happening around the west bank
5: well just generally speaking there's a lot of uh demonstrations yesterday specifically uh, they took uh, a bloody turn um when people uh through their anger at the PA, who has been uh, silent but also has been receiving American counterparts, smiling in their faces, um, and being part of this diplomatic uh, attempt to negotiate what is possible in Gaza. So, there's a lot of anger um, directed towards the PA. There's a lot of clashes with Israelis on flashpoints that are traditional. Uh, martyrs are also um, uh, falling in, in, in increasing numbers. But of course, they remain numbers that are not uh, as significant as what's happening in Gaza. And at the same time, organized uh, resistance, at least uh, in the north of the West Bank, is still engaging the Israel military in Jenin, Naples, Tulkarim, and other places uh, where it's possible. So this is the situation as of now. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, And John. What is your uh, analysis so far on what we've seen in terms of the uh, bombing of Al Ahli Hospital and the claims, uh, not just by Israel, but by the Western leadership and Western media, um, that this was uh, an errant uh, Hamas rocket? What do you know about this so far?
6: Well, i mean none of the evidence that they've showed us um indicates that stuff they they've shown us uh, an audio recording um the original their original statement was that um, they showed cctv footage from one of the settlements of the rockets being intercepted that doesn't make any sense um the speed and the payload of that um it just sure didn't seem like a palestinian rocket i don't want to say that palestinians don't have that capability because uh, we've seen that they do, but there's the 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 way that Israel does this is completely shifts the burden onto us to prove uh, something that is um, just the disproportionate amount of evidence of what's going on, even just at that hospital alone. It's been targeted before. This is not the first time. Um, and it's been targeted three times. That was the third time it was targeted just in this last week war, they killed or they bombed the director's home, as was said. I mean, I think Ali covered it, it, it as best you can. The Israelis have a playbook that goes like this every single time. We're checking into it. It wasn't us. Well, it was us, but they made us do it. Um, you know, it was us, but look at this grainy footage, which they haven't even got to the grainy footage part yet. Part of the solidarity mission of the United States was to send over. Um, surveillance equipment, um, surveillance planes. The Israelis, I mean, every report that we just heard from Gaza, you can hear the buzz of the drones overhead. They have the capacity oh to show evidence. Um, but but then you just get this just really callous, like my uh, our team didn't do it kind of stuff from Biden, as if that's... That's the point as if the targeting of this hospital where people um, you know, are today, the hospitals are running out of uh, fuel for their generators. We're getting to the point of no return for people um, in, in the way. And then the focus gets shifted off to us to debate with these tiny little pieces of evidence um, that looks like every Israeli airstrike that they put out in their snuff videos um, constantly. look at the snuff videos compared to that the Israelis put out um, compared to what we've seen of the rockets. But also, just to, to note, the rockets are still being fired. The Israelis were able to find multiple examples of rocket barrages around that time being fired simply because the Palestinians have constantly been firing rockets despite 10,000 airstrikes despite thousands of people killed. Um, You know, despite this vaunted Israeli, um, you know, striking of Hamas targets, quote unquote, that we hear about every day, they've been striking these targets. Yet there's rocket barrages constantly. The Knesset's meeting in bomb shelters. Blinken and and Netanyahu are having meetings in bomb shelters. I mean, this is the stage before airlifts is when you're having your meetings in bomb shelters. So I think that we need to sort of... um, you know, keep the focus on that. I I don't, I don't, I can't bring you any evidence from a strike in the Gaza Strip that can prove something that hasn't already been said. So I just want to say that Um, the people have have uh, talked about the, um, you know, the targets, the, the, the attacks on Hamas are supposed to be hitting Hamas targets that are debilitating their military capacity. And the proof In these rocket videos is that that's not true palestinians are still able to defend themselves 11 days in um, with rocket barrages that have almost the entire country of israel running to bomb shelters constantly uh john um the footage we showed
7: earlier of the the israeli strike on the ahli hospital um there's a lot of people saying online that it sounds like one of the uh, American Bunker Buster bombs that Seymour Hirsch was talking about in his article. Um, are you familiar with those weapons? And can you speak to that at all?
6: No, I, no, that wasn't one of those. But there, people have been talking about JDAM kits, which are basically just guidance systems that are put on Israeli weapons, and they can put them on all of their munitions. Um, but yeah, the speed uh, and the payload... Um, doesn't match Palestinian rockets from everything that we've seen,
1: and, um, and I I do want to challenge or, or just come back to something you said earlier because I want to make sure that you uh, that you're talking clearly. You said that that Palestinians could have that capability, but I, I want to challenge that because we've never seen any Palestinian munition that can cause either that number of deaths or that size of an explosion and i'm talking about the video we showed earlier when i was speaking which the washington post says it has verified you know geolocated to be of the bombing of the hospital so palestinians certainly have a whole range of different weapons but i mean according to israel tens of thousands of rockets have been fired from gaza into israel over the years and We've never seen anything like that. And and by the way, we can say that there have been cases, because we follow these things very clear, carefully, where very tragically there have been cases of rockets from Gaza falling short and killing people in Gaza. There have been cases where Israel has said that happened where it wasn't true, where it was actually Israel that did it. But there have also been cases that have been Uh, investigated by independent and Palestinian human rights groups, and they found that, indeed, tragically, there was a Palestinian rocket that fell short and killed Palestinians within Gaza. But in no case has it ever been on this scale. It's been, you know, three, four, five people being killed, which is horrifying enough, but not dozens or hundreds and not with this kind of explosion. So I, I just wanted to sort of clarify that. We've never seen any any Palestinian group possessing something like this. Is that is that correct?
6: Yeah, we haven't seen that used. I meant to say that I don't want to say that they don't have the capability and then they show the capability and then it's our credibility that's on the line when really we're watching war crime after war crime happen in the Gaza Strip. No, nothing that we've seen matches that. Can you imagine if those were Palestinian rockets? Can you imagine how the Israelis would react if those were Palestinian rockets? If that's what it looked like, um, no, it, it's absurd, and it shifts the entire, um, you know, credibility issue onto us versus onto the person who carried out the massacre. Um, and, and to show an audio clip of of two random people talking. Um, It's ludicrous. And that's what I mean to say. I mean to say that it's ludicrous. And I think Ali, your story on it um, covered it perfectly well. I don't know that I have any expertise to add to that other than, no, we haven't seen anything like that. Can you imagine Hmm. if we saw that rocket capability constantly on Israel? Um, It just doesn't match with anything that we've seen. The Palestinians don't have the capacity to put hundreds of, of kilograms of payload into their missiles. It's just not how it works. But we don't know that. The, the Palestinians don't say to us, our rockets don't have that payload capacity into them because it's not their responsibility to tell us that their rockets are are good or not. Um, and so we don't have that hard evidence. Um, there's, no, there's nothing that we have ever seen in videos that matches that, whereas there's all kinds of things we've seen in videos that match that Israeli strike. And they're carrying out thousands of other ones identical to that all over the Gaza Strip, killing thousands of people inside their homes. And the scary part about it is what we were talking about last show, this these kind of concentrations of people seeking shelter, like are seeking shelter in that hospital, um, that's what gives rise to these massacres. People are in the U.N. schools, packed into the U.N. schools. Any errant shell on a UN school, um, you know, or let let alone targeted shells, right? Like the 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 massacre um, mathematics just go up so much when you have so many people crowded into these spaces. Every single inch, people are talking about sleeping all over the grass outside of that hospital. Um it it's just the crimes are all around and, and we're forced to um you know to try and, to find pieces of evidence.
1: And it's so and it's so it's such a dilemma because part of the way this 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 narrative or this discourse functions is that you know Israel, which has openly threatened hospitals, that, that has already attacked dozens of healthcare facilities in Gaza. Killed dozens of healthcare workers. This is has been documented by the World Health Organization, uh, and has uh, you know and and has attacked specifically that hospital in recent days. Shelled it, threatened it, and this is the Episcopal Diocese of Jerusalem that is is saying this because this is an Anglican uh, hospital, uh, as I mentioned, the only hospital, Christian hospital in Gaza, Um, and yet somehow we're supposed to believe that Israel wouldn't do this, that this is somehow out of bounds where they have assassinated senior doctors in their homes with their entire families. They are attacking ambulances. Uh, uh, This morning we were hearing uh, reports about how the ambulance the, the the rescue teams are being attacked when when a building is brought down and they're trying to rescue people. The rescue teams are attacked. Uh, the 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 ambulances are being attacked. So the, this idea that Israel wouldn't do this is, is exists uh, simultaneously with the, the fact that Israel does this all the time. And so we're always trying to. Um, To You know, they are, in some cases, successfully putting us on the defensive when we have no reason to be. I mean, there's also this flood of of, uh, so-called expertise online, which is, it's always a dilemma. Do I engage with this or do I ignore it? So this, this, you know, they want to draw you into these discussions about, well, there was no big crater, so it couldn't have been an Israeli bomb. But wait. The Americans who supply these bombs and advertise them online, I I spent some time this morning looking at the various American military websites which market the uh, supposed uh, virtues of their various bombs, is that they make a type of bomb that is designed to explode in the air, that has little impact on the ground, doesn't it's not designed to destroy buildings, but it's designed to cause maximum uh, uh, damage to so-called soft targets, which means human beings, human bodies, because the bomb fragments and these tiny fragments don't have the ability to, to tear down a building, but they destroy the body of a child. And But what I, I, I raised that, because it's not that I'm trying to say, well, they, you know, heres it's that that these fake experts are saying, well, it couldn't have been Israel because there's no crater, when of course it could have been. And the point is, no, you, you know, there's this pretense now. Everyone is acting. I mean, even the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, who, by the way, until yesterday refused to call for a ceasefire, uh, and countless other officials said, oh, we we condemn the blast, we condemn the explosion, without saying who dropped the bomb, without saying who was most likely to drop the bomb, without saying who has been dropping bomb after bomb after bomb, massacring family after family, proudly. I mean, this is not that difficult. And yet they are pretending there is some giant mystery about, who, even if they don't want to say Israel did this 100%, who is the, the most likely to have done this by orders of magnitude? And it, it's just such. And then, even by talking about it, we are taking away attention from the massacres that are happening right now all over Gaza. And so, it's that, that constant uh, battle against the misinformation that is designed to stop us from also talking about what is actually happening. I, I yeah, just we, wanted to reflect on that.
7: Yeah, and we know that this is part of Israel's very conscious psychological warfare strategy. And I want to bring something up on the screen that um, reflects on this, which is the um, the censored Al Jazeera TV series, um, the the Lobby, the Lobby USA, and in that film, you know, which we don't have time to get into the whole story of it, but the, it was basically it was an undercover investigation that was done by Al Jazeera. And in that, there was a, a quote that really reminds me of exactly what we're talking about, this dynamic of having to respond all the time. The head of a group called, the a, 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 an operative of a group called the Israel on Campus Coalition in the USA, uh, who worked in very close coordination with the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs, described how... I mean, it's it's a different arena because it's the U.S. arena of the, the solidarity movement. But he's talking about a very similar dynamic where the student activists for Palestine, Palestinian students and their supporters would be constantly attacked by him and other pro-Israel groups by putting up disinformation about them, saying they're anti-Semitic and so forth. And they spend all their time trying to respond to it. And, and quote, Bame said, they either shut down or they spend time responding to it and investigating it, which is time they can't spend attacking Israel. It's psychological warfare. It drives them crazy. So, you know, a, a different arena, but it's a very conscious strategy that they carry out.
0: Indeed. Um, and, and speaking more about that strategy and the impetus uh, behind it, uh, Abdel Jawad, can you talk a little bit about what, what goes in, in, into planning the kinds of attacks that the Israeli military is enacting right now in Gaza, um, you know, whether it is a hospital or it is a bakery or it is 15, 20-story apartment buildings? Um, what, what goes on uh, psychologically think- here?
5: I mean, um, to speak about Israel's current mode of operation, we have to remember something very important, that one of the, the driving forces in the Israeli military in the past, specifically uh, 10 years, was how to turn the Israeli army into an efficient killing machine, um, specifically using its firepower. But how to integrate that uh, killing machine with intelligence but with another form of, of war, which is amplifying what we call the fog of war, amplifying what we call trickery. You know, it goes back to Sun Tzu. And, and how to commit a massacre without you know, being held responsible for it is something that Israel is now um, amplifying and enacting on the Gaza Strip. We saw some of that in, in 2019, I think. Maybe I'm wrong with the, with the date when uh, Hezbollah uh, avenged one of its uh, uh members who was killed in Syria or Lebanon sorry um uh, on the borders and they they you know they did this whole show where the army uh, took supposedly injured soldiers to Rambam hospital and even the doctors were part of that um you know showcase to to tell Hezbollah like you've actually hit the target when they actually didn't really, injure any soldiers in that uh, specific incident. And we're seeing it more clearly with the Al-Ahli Hospital uh, case study is that it is actually showing us it's, it's, it's a strategy that is created to, on the one instance, to, to create, um, you know, deep impact within the Gaza community um, to commit a massacre without being held responsible politically for that massacre. And at the same, the same time, as you as you all said, is to, is to push us on the defensive in terms of trying to prove what's happening. My fear here is that this is just the start of it. You no, know, it's not only, um, you know, one incident. My fear is that this is just the start of this form of warfare that is being enacted on the Gaza Strip. And it's slowly going to desensitize a lot of the people in the world as they see these controversies being talked over and over again. So I think that in terms of the Palestinian Solidarity Movement, I think in terms of all those concerns for Palestine and for the genocidal attack on Gaza right now happening, we should be very careful and very, very be very aware of, 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 of this new tactic. Um, this new form of warfare and at least this is how i see al ahli hospitals attack uh, you, you pointed out the psychology behind it you pointed out the political uh you know uh, ability to navigate it so i'm not going to speak to that but that's my main worry is that we're just seeing um, the start of it the second thing the last thing i'll say about it is that in the beginning i think there was kind of this wait and see moment for for israelis they didn't really uh, go on the defensive after only a couple of hours they started claiming that this was a you know a palestinian uh, misfired rocket so they were also testing the reaction in the region testing the reaction in the west bank testing the reaction on the international scale seeing what would actually commence if we start th- to start heightening up the form of massacres that are happening because until now, we saw like the, the, the targeting of large buildings, um, houses, homes, uh, but we haven't seen this targeted concentration of people within a hospital, within a Christian hospital, the only Christian hospital, as you pointed, um, in the Gaza Strip. So they're, they're trying to amplify uh, their air bombardment. And I think for me reading this, I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a well thought of strategy on how to commit a massacre uh, without being held responsible for it.
1: And yeah. if you think about so, uh, the the reaction, I mean, one immediate reaction was that uh, Mahmoud Abbas withdrew from the summit uh, with Joe Biden and Sisi of Egypt and King Abdullah of Jordan that was scheduled in Amman. And then Jordan pulled the plug on the summit. Um, which was the only thing that they could have done, in my opinion, because otherwise they would have been giving, I mean, I don't want to absolve them because to a certain extent they still are, giving Arab cover to uh, this Israeli genocide um, by posing with Biden, by allowing Biden to um, look as if he is engaging in some kind of diplomacy when the only purpose of his visit is to give even more green lights to this massacre. So um, I'd love to hear your assessment of uh, how you see the bigger regional reaction. And is that it? Is it just more statements or is there any kind of turning point here where the Arab states, uh, let alone others, are actually going to go beyond the uh, their their usual, uh, just verbal, their their lip service to Palestinian rights?
5: I mean, I think, look, Arab states are going to think of themselves, but let me just point this out, Um, although it doesn't really speak to your question. um, I think um, one of the outcomes, the political outcomes, on the regional scale for this current war, at least for now, is that a war that was started by Palestinian fighters, Um, or at least um, this offensive operation that happened on the 7th of October, is now putting the whole region on balance. So for the first time since 1973, perhaps, we have such a situation. Um, I think this is one of the major successes for this operation. That is, it's actually that Palestine is not only relevant, Palestine can disturb and destruct the whole region, can even impact the global international economy if a regional war erupts. So what we're seeing in terms of diplomatic moves comes within this context. So everybody that was saying for a long time that Palestine is irrelevant, now Palestine is the core of what's happening. Of course, that has to do with, you know, uh, Palestinian resistance alliances uh, across an axis that is also supporting and, and uh, placing pressure on Israel to stop its warfare through different means. So um, this, is, this is one of the major outcomes. And I think Arab states at this moment, the Arab states allied with the US and allied with, uh, uh, with Israel as well, are also afraid, specifically Jordan and Egypt, because Jordan and Egypt will have to um, think about the possibility. This genocidal talk is really serious this ethnic cleansing campaign that is going on is really serious, and that they have a, a new major exodus of Palestinians from the West Bank or from Gaza into their territory. So there's a lot of worry on on in terms of, of, of what that means to these states, not to mention also that slowly what we're seeing in the Arab world is larger movements social movements political movements going to the street breaking this fear uh, uh, the fear of the regimes and voicing their not only their concern and outrage but also the rejection of their current government policy so that's another dimension that i think all the states of the region are also looking at it. not to mention also that one of the outcomes of this war is holding up a lot of these normalization deals Um, that happened with the Gulf states. And not only that, it's also disrupting or making a lot of, I think, these leaders rethink their deep um, interests in entrenching uh, this normalization with economic investment, with political ties, with strategic ties. So this is all happening at once. You know, things are really flux. But at this current moment, I think a lot of these states are still giving Israel the time to regain some of its posture in the Arab world. Because what happened on the 7th of October, the complete um, destruction of the Israeli army, the southern division of the Israeli army, the defensive line, is not a joke for these states because at some point it becomes clear to the Arab mind, who since 1948 at least has been living in this, if you want to call it the temporality of defeat, that Israel is a state that could be defeated and that the arabs could win over it so i think that for a lot of these states there's still a vested interest to make palestine go and don't get me wrong the objectives of this campaign in israel is not about hamas it's about making this whole palestinian issue go it's about regaining control over the diplomatic moves political moves that could come out of 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 the situation here and at the same time um, you know, a lot of these Arab states will give Israel the room to 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 try and enact um, um, its massacres, its military policy, its political objectives, to at least uh, make this historical opening in Arab minds closed once again.
1: But I mean, you know, just uh, I'd like to push you on that a bit because I think that what happened on October seventh was historic. It did really destroy the myth of the Israeli army. And by the way, there was a very significant statement yesterday that has gotten much less attention than I think it should have. And I'm going to pull it up. And, and Tamara, if you're uh, uh, if you can pull up um, Maureen's uh, update, our colleague Maureen Murphy, who does these brilliant daily roundups, which are so comprehensive. I mean, these are just. The kind of briefings that I think, um, uh, you know, government leaders should get because she's so comprehensive in that. But um, one thing uh, that has gotten little attention here is um, a statement yesterday from um, the Israeli army spokesperson who said that... um, we are preparing for the next stages of the war. We haven't said what they will be. Everybody is talking about the ground offensive. It might be something different. Uh, That's um, Israeli army spokesperson Richard Hecht speaking during a briefing with reporters. And so that is very, to me, is very significant because as Maureen wrote, it looks like they are... uh, walking back or uh, maybe walking back the ground invasion which we had been led to expect is imminent and inevitable and is an essential part of their strategy. So I'd, I'd love to hear what, what John thinks about that too uh, in a moment but my point here is that the, the, the Israelis do not appear eager to go in to a um, to a ground war here. So, but back to the question of the Arab world, I mean, maybe maybe this is not a fair question to put your... To, if we put ourselves in the mind of the rulers of Egypt or Jordan or any of these other regimes, really, if, if, you, if you just say, okay, I only want to think of my own interest in staying in power, wouldn't it be better to be uh, the leader who does what the people wish, who uh, is in tune with the utter outrage and anger uh, and disgust that's in Egypt and Jordan among the people of what Israel is doing, instead of being a vassal, instead of being always the first to put your hand up and volunteer to be in service of the United States and Israel. And then the arguments we always hear is, oh, you know, it's economic. Who else is going to give us aid? But there are other options. I mean, there's a, there's a big world out there. You, you know, whether it's Jordan or Egypt or another country, they can have ties with with uh, other regional other regional powers, with China, which is eager to invest in in countries across and is doing so. So, in other words, it just seems to me at a certain point. It becomes totally self-defeating to maintain this posture of "we are the slaves of the United States, no matter what." Do these elites have those discussions? Are they capable of seeing beyond uh, where they are now? Can we expect anything different? I mean, it just seems to me crazy that they would continue to go along with this. And credit where it's due: they canceled the summit with Biden, but. That's you know that that they couldn't have gone ahead with it. It doesn't really signify any kind of major strategic shift. What do you think?
5: Well, I think you're right in pointing out the the authoritarian pragmatism of these states, um, in in the sense of what you're speaking about is that what 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 would happen if they would receive Biden after the Ahli Hospital massacre. Um, they're generally pragmatic but i think one of the things that we don't really um i think everybody because we're 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 always you know in tune with the next event the the event that is happening now is that one of the things that we don't understand is that what happened on october 7th was this historical break it's a historical opening where the the old kind of let's say um, uh, mentality of these elites is now meeting a new reality and in that in-between moment um, there's a lot of you know miscalculation, a lot of paralysis, a lot of uh, not knowing what to do, silence, um, letting things uh, happen, wait and see type of strategy that we have seen from a lot of these states, except when it came, you know knocking on their door like Egypt, then it had to really organize a position at least on the Sinai issue and and accepting Palestinians from Gaza coming into the Sinai. So I think that, you know, we shouldn't overestimate the capacity of these states to move with these events. This was an event that Israel is also not necessarily knowing what it should do about. No, I don't think Israel still has a strategy. A concrete it's strategy. also
1: not the first event. I mean, of course, this is no. on a scale, but there was May of 2021. Uh, you know, there, there have been the the. it's not news to anyone that Israel's goal is first and foremost to in Jerusalem, to take over al-Aqsa and to take it over completely, or at least to partition it as they did with the uh, Haram ibrahimi in Hebron, that this is a government that, that fervently believes in ethnic cleansing, that the settlers are, are engaging in ethnic cleansing and pogrom. In other words, I mean, yes, it is a break, but it's also... Uh, it's also not that much of a a surprise in, in in a sense. I guess the surprise is how weak is the Israeli army was. Well, I, I guess that is the major new element. But then, I mean, it didn't take us long to to see that. I mean, w- you know, we could absorb that uh, pretty quickly. Why why can't they? I mean, I don't know if we can. Know. I mean, it just it seems that they are so tied to this path of. Um, uh subservience and uh being against their people being against a liberatory track for the region that, that uh, you know it, it, i don't know maybe it's it's uh, impossible for them to change
5: i mean yeah i mean I, I don't think i don't have a lot of hope of them changing so i mean i'm i'll, I'll start from there as a, i don't think that they'll change um but i do think uh, ali that also, I don't, I don't think at this moment, critically speaking, that the all of the incidents that you spoke about in the past, you know, they were always confined to this kind of relationship between Gaza, Palestinian resistance there, and Israel. And I think this is why the component of the region be, being brought in here is fundamental to how these Arab states are also thinking about the situation. This is not only a give and take between um, um, Israel and Palestinian fighters in the Gaza Strip, um, Hamas and other groups. This is also um, you know, a, a wide regional uh, development because when you have Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Hezbollah, Yemen, all saying that at some point they might intervene in this fight, um, then it becomes a totally different game for the region for these leaders and also um for how americans think about it and how also how the world will look at it. because i think you know nobody's interested in more inflationary pressures coming in in a world economy that is already vulnerable nobody's interested in a regional development that leads to you know um, the rise in the price of oil. Nobody's interested in you know moving away from the Russia-Ukraine war, at least from a Western perspective, into a new regional development. American soldiers are all around the region as well, and and they could be at risk. Nobody. So there's a lot of dynamics happening in one in this flux moment, and I think one of the components as well, as I said and I mentioned before, is this you know the reaction of the Arab Street, where it will go, how it will lead. And I think because the Abraham Accords moved without a lot of rejection and resistance from the Arab populations after years of civil wars and, you know, being exhausted. And because, you know, you had these normalization deals, a lot of these Arab leaders have also felt safe. In the relationship with israel and the u.s have felt secure that this relationship is is not really now a critical point of contention for a lot of the arab people either they don't like it but they're silent about it or they reject it but they're not willing to go and produce any political action on that front and i think this is why significant again palestine has become the story in the region and the world palestine has become also something tied to this whole region and something that you know, could lead the region to war. And that's why nobody can ignore Palestine at this moment, at least specifically, and specifically if Israel cannot actually, um, um, you know, produce any significant strategic results in its current, you know, offensive attack on the Gaza Strip.
0: John, uh, what do you make of this? And especially going back to Ali's question beforehand about... um, You know, Israel's uh, weighing the options on now a a ground invasion, which which, uh, you know, we we were being told was inevitable and inescapable. Um, What do you make of uh, what we're seeing now?
6: Well, I think Ali's right. That was the first time that was the first tempered statement that we've gotten since the Saturday attack that, um, you know, disabled their entire southern command and has <clears throat> Half of the generals underground right now um, in the Gaza Strip. I I expected this cowardice. I expected bombing of hospitals. I expected this aerial bombardment. The promises of the ground war were the thing that was surprising to me. I think what we're seeing is what is is more um, what I expected. This kind of tempering the language. Um, it's very late into this. I think that the Kassam brigades probably assumed that the war was going to start on Saturday. Um, this kind of, and then of course, all kinds of these same experts um, were saying that it was going to happen um, within 24 hours. Then it was 48, 72, and now we're on 12 days later. Um, so I did notice that too. That was the first statement from anyone in the Israeli establishment um, that that tempered that. But it's also important to remember that these are all the people that are going to lose their jobs. Um, you know, these generals are all going to lose their jobs. who's going to go down in history as the prime minister who oversaw the worst um, security failure in Israeli history. I think those guys were, you know, saying desperate things. Um, I mean, I, sh- I I laid it out in the last show the the obstacles to um, fighting urban warfare and the record of the Israelis willing to do that is much much smaller um, than their record of bombing hospitals. Which, I mean, you could just you can find dozens of, of examples of of that. Um, examples of them fighting street by street are uh, are thin.
0: Yeah, um, and. You know, uh, Israeli generals has, have also been talking about um, one of the reasons why they they want to, uh, you know, clear the north of the Gaza Strip is to target um, the tunnel infrastructure. Um, what what can you say about that? I mean, what is what is Israel's goal there, and how likely would that even be if they decided, fine, let's go and do a ground invasion, or if they kept bombing? Cowardly by uh, by air.
6: Well, the the numbers that the Israelis use are that um, there's 500 uh, kilometers of tunnels underneath the Gaza Strip. That's the number that the Israelis use, um, but it's also where all their prisoners are. So it's not clear that the this these attacks on tunnels um, are are even what the Israelis want to be doing. Which is why there, there's no strategy. The Israelis don't have a strategy um, that that's visible. And, And I don't think that you can go from that position to, um, you know, the logistics necessary to carry out a permanent occupation or to occupy the entire North of the Gaza Strip, which is when we say the North of the Gaza Strip, we're not even really talking about the North, right? We're talking about more than half of it. There's, that's the area that they're, they're pushing out. Um, yeah, I mean, we detailed it last show. I, I don't see. I see that that um, there's obviously no concern for the prisoners um, that they're talking about if they're talking about this kind of action. Um, I think that uh, yeah, it's it's not clear to see what their strategy is. Even the mustering of the troops on the borders um, isn't sufficient for an invasion, and then. Um, the situation in the North is going to require, which is carrying on, is going to require more of their focus um, than a week ago. So it, it's not getting easier for them, the yeah. situation. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I between... also think
1: that, yeah. that uh, you know, the, as time passes, the memory starts to fade, you know, the initial outrage and anger over the alleged Hamas massacres of um, uh, Israeli civilians. And I say alleged, again, going back to my opening comments, it's not to say no Israeli civilians were killed or that no Palestinians killed Israeli civilians, but we have seen no evidence, and correct me if I'm wrong, of systematic, deliberate massacres and executions of Israeli civilians. Uh, what we have seen is this, and I come back to it because it's so important, this account by Yasmin Porat. By the way, I should let viewers know that when we spoke about this last time, um, we, we had said that the interview of Yasmin Porat on Israel Radio on Khan, the uh, initial, the, the official radio was removed from their website. It was actually put back up. So it is now on the state radio website. We don't know why it was put back up. It may well have been our story that somehow forced them to put it back up. But uh, this story has been absolutely viral. It's gotten, you know, I think now we're getting close to hundreds of thousands of reads. and no, uh, no mainstream media has picked it up, not one, I checked. No mainstream media has picked this up outside of Israel. And, and that's very telling to me. So, but what, what I want to say is that as time passes and that initial rage and anger and wave of international sympathy fades, I think politically it may also get harder for Israel to to launch another ground war. That's not to minimize the horrific massacres that they are still doing now as we speak. But this would be, you know, a, an even greater level of, of carnage.
0: Well, we're going to wrap up, um, Abdijahed. From your vantage point in the occupied West Bank, um, uh, you know how what are what are the conversations like? Uh, where you are amongst your colleagues or family or friends. um, How are people looking at what's going on in Gaza?
5: I think that, um, you know, the West Bank has, has lived at least for the past uh, 16 years, a different life than what Gaza has lived in terms of, you know, uh, the ability and the capacity to resist um, the current stratification in, in, in class um the creation of consumerist society that is um you know also very vulnerable and um but at the same time i think there's a lot of conversations around uh, the horror of what is happening um i saw yesterday my friends my family crying um, um when they received the news of what happened at the hospital um, so it's it's a very hysteric moment if you want to call it like that where a lot of questions are being raised and people are trying to formulate questions that make the world more comprehensible but yet again every event with every killing with everything that is happening um, a new question arises so you know people are just pointing out things and and you know uh, going there but there's a lot of rage as well a lot of anger At the current PA elite, at their complicity, with their complicity with what's going on, with their failure to read the world correctly, uh, with their inability to be um, a political movement that respects the sacrifices that is happening in Gaza, but not only uh, respects them, that has some fidelity to the Palestinian struggle. And that at this critical moment and juncture in history would actually um, shift a bit its politics or shift extremely its politics and current alignments. Um, and I think um, that is slowly uh, enraging people and threatening the stability of the PA. I'm not saying that you know we'll see it in a day or two or three. But as this war goes on, um, I think the PA is one of the biggest losers out of this war, um, in terms of whether it's legitimacy. Even if, let's say, God forbid, uh, we saw the total collapse of of the resistance in Gaza, they won't have it better as well in terms of how they will perceived by the Palestinian people, betraying them as at this very particular moment. So, and they have managed this in a very, very uh, uh, cynical. Uh, unconcerned and uh, highly uh, disengaged manner um, as if they live in another galaxy uh, as a lot of people have perceived them correctly to be so there's a lot of anger but a lot of fear of this anger leading to civil strife to problems to you know this whole politics of, of you know civil war and the specter of civil war that you know haunts people in the West Bank as something that prevents them from you know revolting completely, at least at this moment, at this particular moment. But we already are seeing the signs of what's happening, at least in terms of the West Bank. And this is the current picture. I mean, it's war is something that you know brings out the horror and the hope at the same time. And and people shift their emotions in, in, in these two directions. And I hope that most people should place hope before the nightmare of war, because I think there's a lot to also uh, look forward to in terms of what uh, the Palestinian resistance has successfully uh, managed to create for all of us. So
0: yeah. Thank you, Abdel Jawad. Omar, an academic lecturer at Birzeit uh, University in the occupied West Bank. Ali, I know you have uh, a couple of closing remarks, and then um, I know we want to read a couple of the viewer comments before we wrap up.
1: Well, I just thank you for to everyone, and thank you to to all our viewers. Um, we've had a lot of new people finding the electronic intifada during these live streams, and we're very happy to that you found us and we found you. And I just wanted to introduce you to... Our website, which you may not have seen, we're going to put it up on on the screen. We are a totally independent uh, publication. And you can see, if we just uh, scroll down, uh, we have been publishing tremendous coverage um, uh, of this uh, horror in Gaza analysis. One of the things I'm very proud of is... That our writers in Gaza continue to write and it is incredible they are sending us their stories via WhatsApp uh, if they get a few minutes of internet a day, they'll email them but they want to speak they want to be heard and we're very proud that we're able to publish their analysis their experiences as well as uh, I think some of the best analysis all over the world and uh, tomorrow, if you go back up to the top of the page, uh, up there on the left, you'll see the um, get updates. If you click on that, you'll be able to sign up for our email list, get our newsletter, get notified of the uh, when we're gonna have these live streams. And also uh, a reminder that uh, we are a, com- a completely independent publication and so I just want to say thanks to everyone who uh, has supported us and does support us for making all of this work uh, possible. So uh, thank you again. And thanks again for all the messages, emails, texts. I'm sorry we can't reply to all of them as fast as we want to, but we are receiving them and they mean a lot to us. So thank you.
0: They really do. Thank you so much. Um, and finally, Asa, let's read some of the reader's comments that have come in over the past hour and a half. Yeah.
7: Thanks, Nora. Well, we've had, as usual, lots of support for our friends in Gaza and for Yusuf uh, Jamal, uh, who uh, was reporting from Turkey on his family in Gaza. Um, and we, we've had, I mean, you know, we, we had some interesting comments that we, we could probably have a, uh, you know, a discussion show where people write in questions potentially in the future. I don't know, something perhaps to think about. Uh, but uh, we've got people, viewers from all over the world. We had thanks from Mexico. Um, lots of praise for the Electronic Intifada and all the work we do. Kind wishes to Ali and Electronic Intifada for debunking all the propaganda. Um, Thank you, Electronic Interferno, for your continued force in delivering the horrific truth. Um, lots of messages like that. Yeah. Paul Meeny says these Palestinian journalist videos are essentially important for their documenting Israeli terrorism against the Palestinian civilians. Thank you, Paul. Um, and we just, we've just we had support from all over the world. Um, Saka Papa says share EI posts and live streams as much as possible. Sharing is caring. Thank you very <laughs> much for that.
0: With that, uh, I want to thank our our viewers and our listeners and our supporters um, and our just exquisite contributors uh, to these live streams. Um, especially John Elmer, uh, Abdijawad Omar. I am just so and I know we're all very indebted to your. Um, sharp, sharp analysis every time. And um, join us on Friday for yet another live stream. We'll send out all the details, of course, if you sign up on our website at electronicintifada.net and uh, read our latest. Uh, We'll keep you updated as much as possible. Thank you so much. Thank you to Tamara Nassar, of course, um, behind the scenes. And um, we will speak to you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks.